You're tuning in to Lovecraft Country Radio. There's some strong language and spoilers ahead. Buckle up. We are here because we did not believe them when they told us our rage was not ladylike. We did not believe them when they said our violence goes too far. We did not believe them when they said the hatred that we feel for our enemies is not godlike. They say that to women like us because they know what happens when we are free. Free to hate when we must. Free to kill when we must. Free to bring destruction when we must. That is our freedom. That is our prayer. No matter what they think of us after we grind them into the dust, that is our love! I'm really mad at you, Shannon. Why are you mad at me? I'm mad at you because I'm in tears. Yes. And my heart is so full and it's your fault. (laughs) And maybe I didn't want to feel anything today. Maybe I just didn't want to feel anything this big today. And you left me no choice. This is episode seven, baby. All the feels, all the feels. Let's get into it. Episode seven. I am. Welcome to Lovecraft Country Radio. I'm Ashley C. Ford, podcast host, writer, and horror enthusiast. And I'm Shannon Houston, a writer for the HBO series Lovecraft Country and mother to three free Black children. And also mother to a turtle named John Avelli, who my youngest child told me I absolutely have to shout out today on the podcast. So hello, John Avelli. Hello, John Avelli. So this is Hippolyta's episode and also your episode, Shannon. Yes. I'm all the way here for it. This is so wild to me. I can't believe we're at episode seven. Um, I co-wrote this episode with our showrunner, Misha Green, and it's very Shannon-centric, and it just (laughs) feels so good to dive into all of the things that Hippolyta and our other characters experienced on this wild, wild ride of an episode. So this is an episode about the guiding of Black women. Mm. And there are such beautiful odes to Black women as adventurers. Right when Hippolyta starts her own adventure, she runs into Bessie Stringfield, which freaked me out. As soon as I saw her, I knew who she was. I've wanted a motorcycle for so long. I've had motorcycle dreams for many, many years. And seeing her was amazing. She was the first Black woman to ride her motorcycle alone across the United States. And then over in Paris, we see Josephine Baker become Hippolyta's mentor, who was an American-born entertainer in France. She was also really involved in politics both here and abroad. And she's played beautifully here. Yes, we're going to talk about Josephine. We're going to talk about Bessie. We're going to talk about Beyond Say, who's in the white room with Hippolyta. We have a lot to get into. And obviously, we're going to talk more about this epic adventure that Hippolyta goes on. But if you'll allow me, Ashley, I want to go on a brief tangent first. Yes. And talk a little bit about the epic adventure of me writing this episode with Misha Green and failing in several areas to do my job. (laughs) And the reason I'm sharing this story is because, first of all, I just, you know, I'm the only one who can give writer's room tea. So I was like, let me give a little tea and let me talk a little trash about one of the writers in the room. And that writer is me. (laughs) I just want to say, like, writing this episode was obviously incredible and wonderful and powerful. And it was also really, really, really hard. And I was pushed in a way that I had never been pushed in my career, in my personal life, like everything. It was such an incredible experience and also terrifying. And there's also this funny thing that happens when you're working on an HBO show and it's it's like your third job in the TV world and everybody's everybody around you was like, girl, you're the shit, you're doing it. <laughs> and you're working on this episode and you're just like, rah, 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 Black women. And you do start feeling yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, to a degree where it's actually problematic. And the one thing you don't want to do in Misha Green's writer's room is feel yourself so hard that you think you can turn in your outline late. So I had a lot of growth to do (laughs) while writing this episode. And 
my outline was late and I still had the audacity to like have an attitude when I was called out on it. Growing is hard and it doesn't always feel good or feed your ego. And there's mm. there's some of that in this episode as well. Sometimes it feels like being trapped in a white room and having a strange black woman tell you to name yourself. But in the end, at the end of the journey, you're like, wow, I fucking did it. And that's where I am right now. I'm like, oh, my God, episode seven is coming. And I fucking did it. <laughs> you really fucking did it. I want to tell you that at the end of this episode, I felt like I was floating. I felt weightless. Yeah. And it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. I mean, there were tough moments in this episode. Got to have our tough moments. Yeah, this is Lovecraft <laughs> Country, so there's always going to be some intensity. But it this is maybe one of our least uncomfortable, tense, potentially problematic episodes. Like, you are supposed to have that feeling of floating at the end. I, I, and I think you're feeling that. I hope that you're feeling that because... You felt like Hippolyta. I did. Yeah. I did. And that that's what was so wild was watching her and like almost like having these moments, these interchanging moments of feeling like it's her, it's me, it's her, it's me. Mm-hmm. And compared to the rest of this season, I could handle it. Like I could really <laughs> be okay watching this episode. Oh, I love it. I hope that the rest of the audience feels similarly to way that to the way that you feel. And I was thinking probably the best way to navigate our conversation about episode seven is to talk about it in a similar way to the way we talked about it in the writer's room. And the way that we talked about it in the room was our character has suffered immeasurable grief over the course of this season. She lost her husband. And I think we shouldn't underestimate how uncomfortable and terrible it would feel to lose a person that you love and to not know what happened. And so there's a lot of anger wrapped up in this as well. And so we we talked about it, like, imagine this character is going through this thing. She needs therapy, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's the journey that we're trying to take her on. In therapy, you explore and you interrogate your life's actions in hopes of reaching this sort of self-discovery. And that's what we're seeing Hippolyta try to do over the course of this episode. And I'm very into that, you know, from my own experiences in therapy, which are extensive. (laughs) I know that one of the first steps is naming and identifying yourself, naming and identifying your feelings. Who are you really? Mm -hmm. What do you really feel? And when Hippolyta does this reflection for herself, she recognizes the ways she's made herself smaller as a form of survival. And I love talking about that because the act of shrinking is a survival tool. Shrinking yourself, making yourself smaller, thinking of yourself as like invisible, you know, I'm just an observer. And it can be true that like you are an observer and a really good observer, but that's not ever all you are. But it seems easier to survive if we are small and we can just be looked over versus picked on. So yes, yes. I love that. I love that. You're talking about shrinking as a form of survival because Hippolyte is the one who says that she was shrinking herself and also that people were helping her shrink herself. But she's not the only character in our story who has to shrink themselves in order to survive. So before we get into all things Hippolyta, let's talk about one of our most troubling characters, Montrose, who we've, I think gone through a lot of ups and downs with over the course of this season. And in episode seven, we see that Montrose is part of a community where there's this attitude that you have to try to make yourself as normal as possible. And to do that, you have to try to tone it down. So to be a gay Black man during this time, I mean, it's it can still get you killed. Back then, it really meant that there was a double target on your back. So this breakfast scene that we see with with Sammy is really interesting because on the one hand, we're seeing growth from Montrose. Mm-hmm. Sammy has spent the night. They're experiencing intimacy in a way that they've never experienced it before. And like, you're kind of hopeful that maybe they'll get it right this time. Maybe he'll be able to open up. But the minute that he finds out that Sammy ran into a neighbor, the whole energy of that scene yep. changes in a big way. Yes. And Sammy's not having it. 
to be fair. Right. <laughs> you know, like Sammy's like, you know, you you don't have to play me for boo-boo the fool too many times. Like if I'm not wanted, I can be gone. We right. don't have to do this. And, you know, the way he asserts himself, you know, you've got to change or I'm done, like setting that boundary, just like seeing Sammy in that moment set that boundary felt really powerful for me in his dynamic with Montrose. Yeah. But Montrose has had this secret for so long and it's coming to a head in this episode. We see that especially when Atticus finds out. So I'm going to ask you, about this scene a little bit. I know how it made me feel, but talk to me about Tick's reaction to finding out um, that Montrose is gay. Yeah, I mean, this was another long conversation in the writer's room because for a lot of different reasons, and I think that it speaks to what the show is attempting to do. There are a lot of uncomfortable scenes in Lovecraft Country. Mm uncomfortable is like me putting it nicely. And the question that we would often ask ourselves is, but is it true? Mm. Meaning we don't want Tick to call his dad a faggot. We don't want to hear that word from the quote unquote hero of our show. We want him to be more understanding. We want him to be really, and, and when we talked about it, we were like, well, what we're asking for is for him to be an ideal Black man in 2020 who isn't homophobic. But we constantly had to remind ourselves, okay, but during this period of time, what would Atticus's actual response most likely be? Right. And wouldn't he be furious? And wouldn't he be uncomfortable? Just like with everything else in this family, it's another secret that Atticus is crashing into. And of course, he's crashing into it in a moment when he's already like tense and looking for answers about a different problem. So that is who Atticus is looking at in that scene in the hallway. And that's who he's calling a homophobic slur because he's angry. I'm still your goddamn daddy! And you respect me! Get out of here! You get out! Don't you ever call me on my fucking name! And I love that scene with Letty where he's like, here's the thing, like, this guy was beating my ass and telling me to man up and basically telling me that I was too soft because I had my nose in books all the time. And really, that wasn't about me. And I think, again, going back to the conversations we've had about violence in our families and generational trauma, it's that thing of, like, what the hell was happening? And I don't even know what was happening. And the whole time, I thought you were beating me because you thought I was soft. But really, you were beating me because you thought you were soft. And you didn't know how to talk to me about that. And then, of course, there's also the other big lie, which is, did Mama know? Yeah. Is what he asked him. Yeah. And... This is devastating because it's like, again, in Atticus's head, it was always, my mom was good, my dad was bad, right? Yep. And now you've got some information that complicates that. I couldn't trust my father, and now I have to question whether I should have trusted my mother. That's devastating. It's also, to me, a scene that's about this thing that we keep talking about, which is the tools that we use Mm. to protect and the tools we think we're using for protection. And this is more of that continued idea that violence in some way protects, which it obviously doesn't. Like, those of us who have had violence visited upon us know (laughs) that it did not protect us, and yet we continue to do it, even verbally. Like, you know, this he has accosted his uh, mantras at this point, physically, verbally, like, we see it, and Mm -hmm. there's this anger, and we see why, and we know why. Like, we have these ideas about why. So many of them. But at the end of the day, the real question is, is any of it actually working? Right. And I think that that's such a big question. And the answer is very scary because the answer is basically no. Yep. <laughs> but that's scary because then it's like, well, what do we do? What, you know, we have to find new tools. Right. And actually, I think Hippolyta's journey is part of an answer to like, here are some tools that actually might be more useful right. or some tools that we should be exploring. And I also love this scene with Letty and Tick and Sammy and Montrose because it's also what leads Letty to stay with Ruby when she sees her at Hippolyta's house. Right. And she apologizes to her. I should have told you about the money coming from Mama. All these time I've spent 
thinking about all the things I hated about her, it never occurred to me that I could actually become her. I may not be a hustler like her, but I tried to hustle you. But I'm sorry. I never heard Mama apologize in all her life. So maybe y'all aren't exactly the same. And of course, it's an apology that also still holds back truth. She doesn't tell Ruby where Atticus is heading, mm -hmm. and she also doesn't tell her or anyone else about the dream that she had in which she was pregnant. Nope. Because, um, you know, sometimes it bees like that. You know, I, I, I might keep that to myself, too. <laughs> like, I might hold on. I might hold on might to, hold that, on to that info until well. it felt more relevant. That's true. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, I also love that moment because Ruby's sitting out on the balcony with the shades yep. on and she's sunbathing. And we definitely did that on purpose because we're we're still trying to complicate the idea that Ruby is a black woman who moonlights as a white woman. Right. Because like in case anyone wanted to suggest that Ruby hates herself or hates her skin, that's not what's happening. That's not the case. I just love seeing Ruby there because I'm like, man, if there's one motherfucker who doesn't shrink themselves. Not at all. She is sunning herself and she is unbothered. And baby, she is in that window and you can look, but you can't touch is the vibe yes. that you're getting from her. It's always the vibe. She's very clear on her bad bitchery. Like mm -hmm. she's like, I got no qualms about this body and this and this skin color. And I also think... She does think not shrink herself. <laughs> she does not. Mm -mm. She's not a shrinker. And, the, and you know, again, we're, we're, all of our characters are different. So Hippolyta is different because we've always gotten the sense that she was shrinking herself. She always wanted to do these road trips for the travel guide. And George, though we love him, was not having mm -hmm. it, you know? And obviously this isn't, this isn't an uncommon story. We see this a lot with Black women, especially Black mothers, whose job is to care for the children and care for the family. And even if you work, you don't really get to think of yourself as an adventurer. And of course, George being George is, has always been trying to protect her. But again, it's this issue of when are you protecting somebody and when are you shrinking them? Mm. So it's really important for her to name this feeling that she's having. And uh, like we talked about in therapy, you have to name these things that you're feeling before you can even start to address them. And so that's also why the title of the episode is I Am, because that's, uh, well, it's what Beyonce says to her in the white room when Hippolyta asks her, who are you? What are you? And she says, I am. And the reason that I loved that sentence is because I am what? Everything. Dot, dot, dot. Any possible thing that you can imagine, I can be. And she needs to hear that as she's entering on this new stage of her journey. And for, for us to kind of get into that and the pleasure that comes along with this journey, me, I can't talk about Black women and pleasure without reading this poem that I just recently read um, in the book Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. So I'm going to start with this to kind of get us in the mood for Hippolyta's journey. Mm. This poem is called A Prayer for Pussies. Grown women know that feeling. You a little girl under all that skin, all of that life and holding back, all of that gray coochie hair and planted placentas under the tree the kids climb when hiding from spankings, under piles of unpaid bills and expired lottery tickets, in your shadow sits that girl within, wise and wild, quiet and unforgiving, indignant and quick, clitoris-driven, an emotional wreck with soulful perfection, plotting on wildness, you start thinking. Remember when I was all one hot heat? One red, ferocious flash. One smooth, sweet licorice. One free, flying, unknown. Mm. And that's a poem by Junata Petrus Nassa. Um, Hippolyta is uncovering that girl within. And in seeking out pleasure, we're able to explore how pleasure can be a radical form of healing. And we start with Paris. You are not in a prison. Where do you want to be? Name yourself. 
myself. What the fuck are you talking about? Where do you want to be? Name it. Who do you want to be? Name it. Name it. I, I want to be dancing on stage in Paris with Josephine Baker. Mm, we do start with Paris, the city of light shining a light on all that Hippolyta has been missing out on so far. Mm -hmm. She's drinking. She's being sexy on stage with Josephine Baker, baby. She's smoking. And it's so indulgent. It's so fun. It's so like, there's like, there's like the tittering of like voices and the clinking of glasses and pearls shaking around people's necks. And you hear all of it. And there's Josephine Baker. Why Josephine Baker? So, so many reasons. But one reason, just first off, I think we wanted to incorporate a woman who Hippolyta would obviously be a fan of. Like, she's basically Hippolyta's Beyonce. Mm -hmm. But also a woman who was a complicated Black figure. Uh, In so many ways, up until this episode, Hippolyta has been the picture of Black female respectability. And so we wanted her to be led by a woman who was often not that. And obviously, Josephine Baker was also an expat. And Hippolyta has to learn that, like so many Black people and um, Black creatives, not just uh, Josephine Baker, but James Baldwin, Nina Simone, and so many others, they learned you might have to leave this fucking country (laughs) to find yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, You might have to be a fugitive to a degree and get out so that you can figure out what other forms of freedom look like. We talk about imagination on this podcast a lot, and it's like, you can't imagine it if you haven't seen it or experienced it. So we needed her to go to Paris. We needed her to be with somebody who's not like Hippolyta, but who's going to bring out those things that Hippolyta has always wanted to do. And we also kept going back to the idea that even though your circumstances change in big ways, you're still you. So even though... You find a multiverse machine, you kill a cop, you go through the multiverse machine, not a time machine because that's basic. This is a multiverse machine. (laughs) You go through the motherfucking multiverse machine and then you meet an otherworldly figure named Beyonce. Even then, you still might not be ready to change. So Josephine is here to help our Hippolyta with that change. And it's also interesting. I love that the change for for Hippolyta starts with movement. She's dancing on stage at the Champs-Élysées. Yes. She's on stage dancing. And it's like, you. it's that idea of like, you got to get in your body. Like, you're in your brain a lot. You're gazing up mm-hmm. at the stars. Like, get in your body. Get with Josephine Baker and these incredible backup dancers. and then you'll be able to start further naming yourself. When she said, I want to be dancing on stage with Josephine Baker, what were your thoughts when you actually saw her dancing on stage with Josephine Baker? I mean, first of all, the costuming was so gorgeous. And I don't know if you know this about me, but my first major in college was fashion design. And I wanted to be a fashion historian at some point. Turns out there's no major for that. Uh, And that's not what I do. But so seeing the costuming immediately blew me away. The actresses, the dancers, it was so visually stunning. And then I thought, okay, she's going to be here and she's going to pop back out. Like I thought maybe she's just getting a glimpse at something beautiful, but then she got to stay. Yes. And when she got to stay, I got, it's almost like I got scared for her, weirdly. Because mm. I'm like, this is too good. It's almost like, it's kind of how I imagine certain illicit drugs. That if I took <laughs> it, I would be searching for that for the rest of my life. Oof. And nothing else would ever feel good enough or feel right or, like, everything would feel a little less pleasurable because of it. Yeah. And I kept thinking, oh, no, Hippolyta, the longer you stay here, the more unbearable it will be to return. Oh. But I also couldn't help but love every moment she was having and wishing that I was there beside her doing the same thing. I know. She's, I'm, and again, she's all the things in this episode. She's a captive at first in the white room. Then she's a backup dancer. Then she's like living this delicious life in Paris. She's smoking. She's sniffing Coke. That shocked me. Yes, yeah, she That wasn't is. in the original draft. I was like, oh my God. 
Um, she's flirting with men and women in that scene. Um, she's all of these things. She's bobbing She really it is the bob, like all of it. What you just said is a, is a really good point about how pleasure, immense pleasure can also be a form of escapism, right? Like you're not living in the real world mm-hmm. and there's a danger there. That is definitely what we were trying to get into because I think that the idea of escapism is also in conversation with the idea of Black fugitivity. Mm. And there's also some Afro-pessimism elements here. Just the idea that, in a way, Black people already don't belong in America. Right. And, and Hippolyta already doesn't fit into America. And so then she has to escape and go to Paris. And she kind of is fitting in there, but because she's an American, she's still thinking back to that time there and what Mm -hmm. this now means in the context of America. Basically, the idea is, oh my God, I just experienced something so delicious and so pleasurable. I didn't even know that it could be like this. Oh yeah. And that's what was being kept from me over there. And this is also what then leads her to having to realizing how angry she is because all of that joy that she's feeling, that drug of escapism and fugitivity and Josephine Baker is reminding her of what she's escaping from. It's reminding her of how much she missed out on. And it's in that conversation that she has with Josephine Baker at the bar where we hear her name, this anger, for the first time. Yes. And there's this this line that, like, haunts my dreams where she says, I feel like they just found a real smart way to lynch me without me noticing the news. All those years I thought I had everything I ever wanted, only to come here and discover that all I ever was was the exact kind of Negro woman white folks wanted me to be. I feel like they just found a smart way to lynch me without me noticing the noose. Don't it just make you angry? Serious. Yes, she said that. She said it. I felt it. I understood. Here's why I understood. And I don't want to say like, because first of all, Feelings are not facts. And we need to, as human beings, Mm. be able to understand that we will feel things, especially when we are in places of great rage and anger. And those feelings are information. They are not directions. Right. So just because we feel a certain way does not mean we have to behave a certain way. But wanting to or feeling that desire, it should be explored. You should figure out where does that come from? Where is that coming from inside of me? What do I want to do about it? Can I do anything about it? Like all of that is part of the conversation. But in that moment, you just got to feel your anger. Yes. And that's exactly what Hippolyte is going through because she's, she's, and we talked about this in the room. She's going, I'm a black woman. Um, I've got a great husband. I've got a beautiful daughter. I have a telescope. You know, my husband runs his own business. We're helping the community. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm actually better off than a lot of Black people in Mm -hmm. America. And I should be satisfied with that. So why am I not? Mm. Why am I asking to go on these road trips? Why am I angry? And then, and again, it's not until George is killed that she's, like, that's kind of the beginning of the unlocking of hold the fuck up. Yes. Something, right. And I think for her also, it's this idea of, like, I waited for him to allow me to come. Mm. I waited for him to invite me so that I didn't make his life hard. You know what I mean? Like that thing. And it's that anger at self and anger at him. Like, And also, what kind of person thinks that they should be allowed to invite me or to allow me? (sighs) Yeah. All of those things. So there's a lot of anger that's been sitting in there. And it's not until Josephine brings it out and says, like, like, name it. Like, what are you angry about? And she's like, again, our definition of lynching is strung from a tree. Mm -hmm. And this, I think the reason that that line, like, I love it, but it also makes me uncomfortable is because it's like somebody like Hippolyta is not supposed to say that she's being lynched, but we are saying this is a this is a form of lynching and it's really smart and it's really powerful because again it convinces you that 
that if you're not happy, that's on you. So she takes that rage and that anger and she names herself Hippolyta Mm -hmm. and she gets transported to the kingdom of Dahomey. These were the warriors who, uh, they were called the Dahomey Amazons. And they were the inspiration for the Dora Milaje and Black Panther. Um, but this scene also came from the idea that Hippolyta is named after the queen of the Amazons in Greek mythology. So when she screams, I am Hippolyta, she's naming herself an Amazon warrior in two different ways. The Greek Amazon warrior and also the Dahomey Amazon warriors. But of course, this is Lovecraft country. So, you know, we're we're everybody's black Mm -hmm. and she has to learn how to be a warrior. She has to learn to fight and she has to train for this, which is another, again, going back to this idea that just because you're in a new situation and we really wanted to focus on this with this episode, it's magic, but it's not magic. Meaning just because you name yourself Hippolyta, you're not ready for this life. So she has to be trained by Nawi and she has to become uh, the warrior that she wants to be. And so she's, getting all this anger and rage out. And it's only through this that she's going to be able to effectively communicate to George. Mm. But I want to talk a little bit about these warrior scenes because I love them and they're amazing. Me too. And also there's this idea of like when she defeats the Confederate army and she names George where I think what we're what we're trying to say is like Black women are fighting a war on several fronts So there's these racists coming at us. And then when we go home, we have partners who are shrinking us, whether they know it or not. And they're doing that. Like part of that's coming from the patriarchy and sexism. And then there's capitalism. There's all these things, these battles that we're fighting. And of course, that's why there are so many Black women on this journey guiding Hippolyta to where she needs to be. I love that. And part of the reason why I really love this interaction between her and George when she, you know, you know, she asserts herself and she says, you helped me, George. Like, I've been shrinking myself and you helped me. And he's he is initially a little defensive about that. And then he stops and he thinks and he goes, wow, you're right. You know, and he understands how he's been doing that. And I think that this is so important because there is a dynamic in relationships, I think, that comes up a lot for people um, who are used to being very assertive in the world or sticking up for themselves in the world in a certain way, or like their partner would never think of them as a person who shrinks themselves or diminishes themselves. Mm -hmm. But they have these things where it's really hard to stand up for yourself with somebody you love and somebody who treats you well. Yeah. Like that's when it becomes really hard to stand up for yourself because you feel like you're, you feel like somebody has handed you cake and you ask for extra frosting when really cakes are supposed to be frosted. Let's not fuck around. Like the frosting was supposed to be free. It was supposed to come with it. You have to like get charged extra for frosting. Uh -uh. It's like, that's not how it works. That's not how it was ever supposed to work. Amen. So I think that that's something that's going on here that's really beautiful is to not only have her talk about what has angered her and how this man, how this person that she loves has also contributed to the diminishing of her sense of self. The idea in this scene is, but we can come back. Mm-hmm. We can figure it out. Just because we name where we've been doesn't mean we can't move forward. Just because we name where we are doesn't mean we can't move forward. Right. Like, And it's so much more special when you can move forward together. And I I think, again, this is a part of Hippolyta's therapeutic journey, right? Of like, first it was just pleasure and ecstasy in Paris. And then it was getting that rage and anger out and being like, holy shit, this is what I've been missing out on. I'm pissed. And in that scene, she can't name this other person that she's pissed at. So now she's with George. And in the writer's room, I remember we were a little bit sad because we thought, God, like, First of all, we've been missing George. Everybody else has been missing George. We just want the scene to be beautiful. We don't want them to talk about the shrinking. Can they just like make love and have fun and go on about their business? And it's like, no, because again, in therapy, you learn like you have to speak it. You have to 
talk to somebody about the harm that they've caused you. And in a lot of cases in our lives, people are not receptive to that. But George is. By the time I met you, I'd already gotten so small. And I thought you knew how big I wanted to be. I thought you saw me, but you just stood by and let me shrink myself more for you. I fell in love with you because you were so curious. I, I knew deep down inside there was a there was a discoverer in you. You're right. I let you help you shrink so we could have a family so I could go and do what I had to do and know that you were safe at home waiting for me. I'm so sorry. I see now what that caused you. I think we also wanted this scene to happen because, like, one mantra of the show feels like, it feels like we're always saying, all your faves are problematic, including all your fave characters on this show. Right. So you love George and you miss George and George was the perfect husband and the perfect dad, except of course he wasn't. Of course George was also complicit. Of course it helped George to have a beautiful, intelligent wife who had to stay home. Right. Of course it made his job easier and his life easier at her expense. And it's necessary for her to say this. It also reminds me of the scene in episode four when she tells Dee the story about naming Hera's chariot. Yeah. And Dee has to scream it out for her. Hippolyta is telling the story quietly. And it's Dee who's like, my mama named that. Like, Hippolyta hasn't quite found the voice to do that. And now, again, she's screaming in so many of these scenes because she's finding that power and that strength. And now that she's done all of that, and now that she's addressed it with George, and again, he's defensive first, but then he fucking shuts up and listens to his wife. And she looks back at him and she... She takes his hand because she's naming herself Discoverer now. And she's also saying, now that I've named myself that, I can bring you along with me. But I'm leading. Like, come on along on my guide trip. This is my journey. And one of the things that healing does that this scene illustrates so well is that it doesn't just benefit the person who is healing. When you are healing, when you are doing the work of healing yourself and making room for yourself and standing up for yourself, you give everybody around you permission to do the same. Yeah. You become a safe place for them to practice being expansive because when you can expand, you can allow others to expand because what you ultimately see is abundance. And you start to understand that the scarcity state we think we're in where, you know, I'm the only one in the room. And if somebody else comes in that's like me, then they've taken my spot or I'm the only person in this space, or, you know, in this relationship, I'm the leader or whatever. When we think of things that way, when our definition of resources and also of power are so limited that we can only think of some people having them at a time instead of the shared experience that I think we were intended to have, when we can really make room for that in ourselves and other people, I think that is a big step toward changing the world and and toward doing that thing that grownups always tell us to do when we're kids, you know, like be the change you want to see. And it's like, yeah, well, y'all do that too. Don't just tell us. But but it's that thing. It's It's like if I'm doing this, I'm making room for other people to do this. And you think about like the Arithia Blue, like the space is the place, like the idea in all of that, that like... The infinite is where you belong. It is from Mm. whence you come Mm. and it is where you will return. So while you are in this vessel, while you're in this time, while you're in this version of the multiverse, do your thing and do it as you because you're the only one who can. Yes. And so that's that last part. She names herself Hippolyta Discoverer and she basically turns into a real life version of Arithia Blue. And I love this. This like warmed my heart because... She didn't see herself as Arithia Blue. Her daughter saw that first. So I just, I love that. And I love that we use this audio from Space is the Place about how to understand or another way to look at Black people in society and what happens if you look at Black people as a myth. And it's like, 
well, if if you were real and if you were a real person, then you would have rights and you would have power and you wouldn't have to go to Paris. But you are a myth. And so what do we do with that? And I don't think we give a concrete answer because, of course, mm-hmm. we never do on this show. But Hippolyta is like, well, here's one thing you can do. And I love that you kept using the word expansion because I'm just thinking of, like, again, your body and your mind. And then there's this other thing that happens at the end of the episode along the lines of expansion and children. And this was another very big discussion slash argument in the room. In case it's not clear, Hippolyta does not go back through the portal. Beyond Say tells her, I can send you back or I can integrate you into this world. And Hippolyta says, you know, I'm scared to go back. That Hippolyta was so small. She's been on a journey. And what we talked about in the room is, yes, there's a version where you go on a journey and you then go directly home and it helps you be a better parent to your child. And then there's a version where you go on a journey and it's so transformative and it's so powerful, you are actually afraid to go home. Yes. Sometimes you're on your under the Tuscan sun shit. Ooh. And you bought your villa. <laughs> And you're not going back. Diane Lane. And I understand. (laughs) Yeah. I understand Diane Lane. I understand the choices that Diane Lane made. And I understand the choices that Hippolyta made. Yeah. But the idea is Diane Lane, I think she can do it because she doesn't have a child waiting for her at home. That is true. Hippolyta is not allowed to do that. Quote, unquote, allowed. And so I fought for her to stay, to choose to stay, because I just thought, let's, again, in the world of this show where everybody does something that we don't like, Hippolyta has to do something that we don't like too. And I and I want to talk about like this thing that we have with mothers on television and in and everywhere where it's like a mom can go on an adventure, but she got to go home. Mm. A mom can be Cersei Lannister, but she has to love her babies at the end of the day and put them first. And it's like, Okay, but no, sometimes we don't. And sometimes we are selfish. And sometimes we fuck up. And sometimes we should be more selfish. Like, again, what's happening in this moment is fear, right? Hippolyta's had an epic journey. But to your point, she still doesn't quite know how to live in a world of abundance. She's still like, there's no way that I can go back home and feel what I'm feeling here. Um, And so she chooses to stay. I love it, but I'm a mom with three kids and a turtle. So, of course, I'm like, yes, bitch, stay in that other universe. Don't come home. It ain't nothing for you here. But what did you think, Ashley? You know, I, mm, hmm, there is part of me that goes, Hippolyta. Now, what about D, right? Right, of course. But there is also this part of me that understands how solitary this journey Um, can really be, and especially for mothers. You know, I don't want Hippolyta to be a parent who abandons her daughter. Right. At the same time, George was clearly gone for extensive amounts of time the entire time that he was in Dee's life. Fact. And we will think of him differently than we will Hippolyta, you know? like, And I know that there are so many reasons why, but it just, it really drove home this idea that like that caring for a self discovery for the sense of discovery when that is your thing when that is who you are when you are Hippolyta the discoverer how do you come back to Jim Crow America how do you come back Mm. to segregated America right and I'm also thinking about how this compares to Montrose you know what I mean yes She's definitely taking more steps than him when it comes to parenting and trying to be a good parent. But both of these children still wind up with parents who choose themselves. You know, Tick and Dee have ended up with parents who, in one way or another, decided that they needed to focus on themselves in an intense way. And when you hide your true self for so long, for that long? There's going to be consequences no matter what. And I think the hard thing to convince people sometimes is that the consequences are worth it. And right now, Mm. we don't know if the consequences are worth it. 
And that's what makes us so uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, and it is uncomfortable because, of course, there's that last shot at the end of the episode. Atticus comes through the the portal. Mm -hmm. And what we see is Dee's comic, Dee's Arithia Blue comic, right next to the body of the police officer that Hippolyta shot. So we can probably assume that that is important. And we can probably assume that Hippolyta not coming right home while Dee's comic is at the scene of a very important crime is probably going to be an issue um, later on in the show. So, so yes, there are consequences for choosing yourself and choosing yourself out of fear, which is kind of what's happening in that moment. And I'm excited to see where it goes. And I, and again, this is about therapy, right? So what we're saying in this episode is that therapy is an adventure to a degree, but it's not all going to be fixed instantly meaning you're still going to obviously make mistakes along the way. And some of that will feel good and some of it you might feel guilty about. Um, But I think the other big idea of the episode is stay in communication with Black women. Stay in community with Black women in your life. And it's kind of amazing where where things can take you. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, I, (laughs) not too long ago, I attended um, an intensive trauma therapy that I now call trauma camp. Uh, Because it's just way easier to say that I went to trauma camp. There were horses. Um, (laughs) And I got these videos after trauma camp was over because we were all so terrified to (laughs) reintegrate, I think, back into what we call the common world. And Mm. one of the things that helped me leaving was knowing that those videos were coming. Yeah, It really helped me to not be so afraid. When I left, like the last day I was there, I mean, I really could not stop thinking there's no way this is going to last. There's no way this is going to last. And then I would stop and remember what I had learned, but I would always come back to there's no way this is going to last. And then I got to watch this episode. Mm. And Shannon, it felt like because this episode exists, I will always have a reminder of what I discovered when I was gone and when I was in the woods figuring out who I am and figuring out like why up until this point, there had been these like internal blocks for me um, just in liking myself. Mm. And I like myself now. And I feel like anytime I watch this episode, anytime I think about this episode, every single time I think about Hippolyta, I'm going to remember how expansive I actually am and stop putting myself into that little box of personal disrespect. I'm so glad that it's having that effect on you. And I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Now it's time to wrap things up like we always do with some references and recommendations for our listeners to continue to expand and float and go on adventures like Hippolyta does in this episode. So I want to just give a shout out to all the amazing Black women characters we meet in episode seven. So Hannah, our girl Hannah, shows up in Letty's dream and leads her out of the house. We have Osberta, a.k.a. Birdie. She's the one who tells Atticus that the Book of Names burned in Tulsa. Also, Birdie and Tick's aunt Ethel became lovers after their husbands died. So we have no choice but to stand those women. Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> Osberta is actually named after... Um, Osberta Harris of Union Baptist Church in Massachusetts, which is where I went to church. And she was one of those amazing Black women in the church who always had a little candy for me, always had a little something for me, always checked on me. She wrote me when I moved away from Boston. Like, she just always stayed in touch with me. Again, like, having a community of Black women in your life, uh, no matter how small their role, is always a really good idea. Yeah, I was going to say, she's got a strong Black woman name. As well. Oh, I just want to pinpoint that. Oh, yeah. That's very, (laughs) very strong. Like, I have an Aunt Robertine, Mm -hmm. and Osberta, I think, beats Robertine, like, for the the strength. Just the strength alone in the blackness. Okay. All right. I think so. We have Bessie Stringfield. We have, um, of course, the iconic Beyonce, played by Karen LeBlanc. We have Josephine Baker, played by Kara Patterson. We have Nawi, played by Sufi Bradshaw. Uh, we also had that epic moment with Frida fucking Kahlo. Uh, so there's a lot of Black femme 
women of color, femme energy guiding our Hippolyta and hopefully guiding us throughout this episode. So some light reading, Afro-Pessimism by Frank B. Wilderson III. Uh, This article that has like so many great other recommendations for more reading, it's called Afro-Pessimism, Fugitivity, and the Border to Social Death by Paula Von Gleick. More Josephine Baker music, obviously, you want to get into. I also thought about In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker, because you may not have a multiverse machine, but Black women have always find ways to escape and to taste freedom, and that book is a reminder of that. Lemonade by Beyonce. We have big lemonade vibes in here. Obviously, everything Anjanu Ellis has ever been in, you should be watching right now, including but not limited to The Clark Sisters and Undercover Brother, which is one of my personal favorites. And then Pleasure Activism, written and gathered by Adrian Marie Brown. And while I was writing the episode, I don't know what it was, but I kept watching FKA Twigs two weeks music video. There's an epic video by this group called this band, Pillar Point. Again, not directly related, but you should see it because I was also watching it while I was working on this. Um, Kia LaBeja is in this video. It's called Dove, and it's just beautiful. It's just like if you ever wanted to just watch a free Black woman be a free Black woman, that's that video to me. Dreams Deferred, Langston Hughes. We have some Mad Max Fury Road vibes. We have Missy Elliott vibes all up and through this. What else do we have, Ashley? The two things that I would tell people to check out because these two films did a lot for me in a similar vein um, of this episode would be A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay, and Fast Color, directed by Julia Hart and starring Gugu Mbatara. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This show is hosted by us, I'm Shannon Houston. And I'm Ashley C. Ford. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Aganaresha Shegre is our managing producer. This episode's lead producer is Jess Jupiter, and our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Natalie Brennan. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Josh Gwynn. Noriko Akabe is our engineer and original music by composer Amanda Jones. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO and HBO Max. We'll be back next week for episode eight, which premieres on HBO and streams on HBO Max on October 4th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Can't wait.